This is the Pfeffer on Power Accelerating Your Career podcast. I'm Jeffrey Pfeffer, your host. On this podcast, every other week, we talk to someone who has used principles of power to accelerate their career, to get out of their own way, and to accomplish amazing things. And today, I am so honored and so thrilled to have on the program with me, Deb Liu. Deb has become, over the years, an amazing friend. She is an amazing executive. She began her career at PayPal, went on to eBay, went on to Facebook, where she actually, and she's going to talk a little bit about this, developed some of the most important products in Facebook's history. In one case, didn't get much credit. In some case, got a lot more credit. And over the years, really has evolved into a person of enormous influence and enormous executive presence. She comes to my class as part of a panel, and over the years, she and I have had lunch, and as part of that lunch, I would consistently say to her, Deb, it's time for you to be a CEO. And my colleague and friend, uh, Katya Verison, who's Deb's personal coach, agreed with this. And so Deb Liu today is the CEO of Ancestry.com, a $4.7 billion company that, of course, you know from helping you trace your ancestry. So one of the reasons I wanted to have Deb Liu on the Pfeffer on Power podcast is because she is an Asian woman, and the Ascend Foundation, uh, which has been an organization that is worried a lot about the career advancement of Asians, will tell you that Asian women face enormous amounts of challenges and career discrimination. And one of the reasons I wanted to have Deb on is because she has both confronted this and overcome it. So the first thing I want to do is welcome you uh, to the Pfeffer on Power podcast. Thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me. It's wonderful to be here. All right. Uh, Deb has written a book called Take Back Your Power. And that is a good way for us to start. We're going to cover several themes with Deb. Take Back Your Power, 10 New Rules for Women at Work. Take Back Your Power is a title that implies that women need to become more agentic about, in fact, taking back their power. So tell us how you became more agentic, what your transition was, what your journey was to going from someone who I think thought that the world was a just and fair place and you should be seen and not heard uh, to becoming a person who not only has become successful and agentic, but is now writing a book that tells women to become more agentic. You know, growing up, I, I was extremely quiet. I was very introverted. I was really shy. I grew up in a small town in the South, and Asian Americans are taught the collective society. So my parents are like, put your head down, get the work done. And they will recognize your brilliance, I guess, is the second part of that statement. And I, I did that, you know, and then you realize that all the lessons you were taught weren't the right ones. When you get to the workplace, it's completely different. You know, part of it is if, if your work is completed and you do something amazing and nobody knows about it, did it even happen? And I remember complaining to Katya, my coach, and she would ask me, like, why are you giving away your power? And she would ask this of me every other week. And I just remember thinking, why does she keep saying that? And this is why I wrote the book. Because, you know, when I first started coaching with her, she gave me your book, Power, um, in 2010, actually. And I read it. And it was really transformative to my career. And I realized that 
I was in so many ways, like not standing up for myself, my team. I was not, you know, asking for resources. I was not amplifying the work that we were doing. And it really took me a long time to learn those lessons, to change the way I was doing things, to start figuring out how to amplify the work and impact. And now, you know, but that's how I got to where I am today. Like if I had stayed on that path, I don't think I would be here. Yeah. That's a that's an interesting thing. Do you want to tell uh, the story about and 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 one of the things that you just said? I think really should resonate with people. When you gave up your power, or when you didn't take ample or adequate credit for the work that you were doing, you were not just harming yourself. You were actually harming your team, who also did not get credit for their good work, and many of them then left the company. You want to tell that story? Yeah, you know, um, so early on when I joined Facebook, I joined with a number of friends who we had all worked together before at PayPal. And we worked on a project that eventually became 16% of the company's revenues when it went public. And nobody cared. And I realized that I was just really bad at figuring out how to navigate that and tell the story. And so the next time I came back, and by the way, everyone left that team, went on to do other things because we just, you know, it was not the greatest experience. And we came back, I came back from attorney leave. I had my third child and I started a new project. And this time we had four people. It was a really small team and we started over basically our careers. And, you know, this time I learned to tell the story. I learned to share the narrative of what we were trying to accomplish. It was the right time for the right product. So this was when we went public as a company. Our stock price had fallen by half and we were working on mobile monetization. And suddenly this project we took a life of its own because we were telling the story of how we're going to solve the company's biggest problem. And again, the product went on to actually be about the same percent of the company's revenues at various points. And it became kind of lore that this small team was able to accomplish something that was really incredible. And it was a fairly simple ads product, but it completely changed the way people looked at the team, the resourcing we got, the support. And it was because I changed the way that we told the narrative. It wasn't just the the product itself, because the, the product, both of them were monetization products, both of them were you know equally successful in a bunch of ways, but really being able to stand up for the team and the story that we were telling, and we were solving a real problem for the company and for the world. It became something that you know went into earnings calls. It was something that people talked about. And even to this day, I think within the company, they talk a lot about this product. And so you think about that, the contrast wasn't that we built something completely different. It was that we were different, the way we told the story. And that is an example of how in the first project, we gave away our power. And the second one, we took that back. And we said, you know, this is something that we can really accomplish together. Yeah, that's a that's a great example. And could you be even a little more specific about how you told the story that second time in a way that produced that level of visibility? Well, part of it is we had so little resources. We didn't have, you know, it was like three engineers and a product manager. We didn't have an analyst. And so we told people, hey, we're gonna, we posted within our groups, hey, we're working on this project. And suddenly an analyst said, I'd like to volunteer to work part-time on this project. And we thought, Okay, why not? And then we posted more about what we were trying to solve and a product marketer joined our team. And suddenly, you know, we the sales team wasn't sure that they knew how to sell the product. So then I went to our partnerships team and I said, can you help us? And they said, absolutely, we will take this product to market. In essence, we created a virtual team of dozens of people, even though the actual core team who were assigned to this project was only four people. And that's the thing that was different was that we asked for help. We told the story, we enlisted people, and suddenly people came out of the woodwork because they want to be a part of something. But if they don't know about it, how can they be a part of something that they're excited about? 
That's great. And you once described this as the hero's journey. You want to... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for me, there's always in the hero's journey, the inciting incident, right? What tells you that you've been doing it all wrong and you need to change? And I think sometimes we forget that the inciting incident is like failure. And so the first project, I wouldn't consider a failure from an objective perspective, but I feel like I failed the team, not really amplifying the work, not really, and seeing it fall apart and have a lot of people go on to do other things. And then, you know, the second part is once you realize you you have this work to do and you have this journey to go on, you have to figure out how to get there. And that was so much of the work that the second project was really about was suddenly I realized that it was on me to do something and to change the way I looked at the world. Yeah, that's wonderful. And one of the stories which I tell in Seven Rules of Power, which you told me, is that you had run in, I think, to a woman who I thought, uh, I, if I'm remembering the story correctly, was a little embarrassed or a little reluctant to be what she called self-promotional. And you, I think, gave her advice around how her reluctance to, in quote, self-promote also, in some sense, let her team down. Well, it was, I was doing a, um, an Ask Me Anything, kind of a Q&A internally, and, you know, someone raised their hand and, and I was talking about how, you know, you need to do some work. You need to, in your, your performance reviews, your self-review, you know, in the groups, you need to like share more about what you're doing because no one else knows as, as much as you do, especially your manager. Your manager is managing, you know, eight, 10 people. How do they know on a detailed basis what you're doing? And she raised her hand and she said, well, I'm really bad at self-promotion. Do you have any advice for me to do this or something like that? And I just said, if you call it self-promotion, you're definitely not going to do it. What if you called it amplifying the work of your team? What if you called it sharing the impact that you're having? Suddenly, you've changed the perspective and reframing it from something negative like self-promotion, which feels selfish, to something that's actually giving, which is you're educating people on your project. You're amplifying the impact of the work on your team. That is actually a gift that you're giving someone else. And even just like the small change in perspective, think about how different that is. And I hear this a lot where people ask like, well, I feel like if I talk about our project, it's self-promotion. And I said, no, you're actually helping your team, but you're also helping other people by not making them come to you to figure out what's going on. You're sharing and opening the door of communication. Yeah. And I love this because it really, I think talks about uh, several lessons. The first lesson, which your story, the last two stories really illustrate well, is that people are much more willing to engage in power and influence if they don't think it's for selfish motives. If it is, as it often is, uh, you know, to move a project forward, to give a team credit. So I think that is an important insight. And the other insight, which you said, which I think is exactly right. Your boss is busy. Your peers are busy. The company is busy. So if you do not do something to give people some sense of what you're doing and the importance of what you're doing, you cannot necessarily rely on them taking the initiative to figure it out. And, and as you said, and I think you said it Brilliantly, you know, nobody knows better than you what you're doing and what your contributions are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that. So in your book, Take Back Your Power, what other recommendations are you making to women? And in particular, what obstacles have you seen in your career as a woman in the Silicon uh, Valley uh, that women need to overcome? Well, I think that, you know, it's it's one of those things where I tell people like, look, you know, women and men now negotiate just as much. Men will get the raise 20% of the time and women will get it 15% of the time, which is great. But, you know, there's still a difference and it's not fair. 
But you know, if you don't ask for it, do you know what percent of the time you're going to get the raise? Zero. So the distance between 15 and 20 is absolutely unfair. Distance between zero and 15 is within your hands. Yep. And so, you know, a lot of what I talk about is learning to ask, right? Like ask for what you want, like rather than saying, Hey, Jeffrey, are you going to promote me? Like make your manager, your ally, you know, say, Hey, what's the distance between me and achieving X, which is my goal. How can I achieve this with your help? Let's sit down and open the steps and, and talk about it. And I think sometimes we, we have this fixed idea, which is, you know, people will promote us or give us a career path, but rather than doing that, let's carve our own path really like decide what you want and go after it and then enlist your allies to help you get there. And a lot of that is, you know, I tell stories of women who didn't follow the traditional path, didn't necessarily kind of go up into the right in their career, but really chose different opportunities and created their own path in the future. And I think that that's one of the most important things is, you know, play your own game and figure out what success looks like to you and go after that. I love the idea of asking, as you nicely said it, you, you don't get what you don't ask for 100% of the time. Uh, if you ask, you may or may not get it, but if you don't ask, you don't get it at all. I think that's, that's right. And the other point that you make, which I think is extraordinarily important, for 40 or 50 years, companies throughout the world, but certainly in the Silicon Valley, have said you are responsible for your career. And nonetheless, many people, both men and women, believe that the company is some paternal or maternal figure is going to take care of them. And one of the things that comes clear in the, in the comment that you just made is you are responsible for your career. And therefore, you need to take the career, your career into your own hands. You need to decide, as you said, number one, what you want. And number two, how you're going to get that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that we kind of leave so many things to chance. Like think about the plans that you make for your project or your team or, and, and so one thing I call it is I product manage your career, like you product manage your product. If you're an engineer, you're a product manager, you're a designer, you have plans, you have goals, you have metrics, but we treat our career so much more cavalierly than we treat our own work, you know? And so how about you say, you know what, the intentionality I put to my project, the roadmap that I have, the goals that I set, what if you did that for your career. Think about how much more powerful that is for you. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. I mean, to, and the word that comes to mind as you're talking about that is agentic. You know, and I and I think one of the things that I've seen you change over the time you've been working with Katja Verison and and the time you've been coming to my class, I've seen two changes in you. One is what you just described, and the other is your executive presence. And so I want to spend the, the last question I want to ask you is about executive presence. Uh, Sylvianne Hewlett wrote this report on how one of the reasons why Asian Americans don't advance as much is because they don't have as, as much executive presence. What have you done to build your executive presence and what advice would you give to others? Yeah, one of my chapters is actually called Finding Your Voice. And I think that the biggest issue for me was, you know, as I said, I grew up really shy and I grew up really quiet. And I grew up with parents who taught me to thrive in a collective society. And then you get to the workforce and you realize that what leadership looks like in America is completely different than what my parents had told me. And I had to figure out, like, what am I going to do about this? You know, I could have said, well, I'm introverted. This is just the way I am. But instead I said, okay, in order to be successful, and by the way, there's a huge bias in the workplace we don't talk about. And the biggest bias is we have a huge bias for people who speak up and are able to speak intelligently about almost anything. It is a massive bias that we just do not speak about. But if you look at the most senior people, that's what happens. And I was so uncomfortable with this. 
But I had to decide at one point, I either learn how to do this or I would not be successful as a leader. And so I worked incredibly hard to learn this. I took speaking classes. I forced myself to do speaking engagements. I would test myself and, and learn this. And I treated it like a skill, you know, rather than saying, well, you know, I just don't know how to do this. I forced myself, I would go to panels in your class and I'd force myself to answer hard questions. And, you know, each time you do it, it gets a little easier until it's second nature. And I think the, the most important thing in your career is having that learning mindset, which is if this is what success looks like, what am I going to do to achieve it? And how am I going to achieve it? And so I learned that this was what I needed to do. And I, I set goals, I set metrics, I worked on it. And, you know, I'm here today having this conversation easily because of all that. But I think sometimes we kind of have this fixed idea. Well, I was just, you know, this is how I, here's how I've been, you know, I'm shy, I'm introverted, I'm, I can't do anything about it. And I think that's the wrong answer. The right answer is in order to lead, in order to have influence, in order to help my teams to be successful, I needed to do a thing. And I needed to figure that out. And if it was learning Spanish, I would do that. You know, but this is what I needed to do. And, and I think sometimes we kind of say, well, I'm just bad at languages. Or you say, you know what, in order to work with my team, I need to learn Spanish. I'm going to do it. And if it's something else, like, let's figure out what that is and, and find a way to do it for yourself. That's an amazing answer. And because it really speaks to the point that power and influence are skills that can be acquired. You, over the years, I said to you one day at lunch, I think even before you became CEO of Ancestry, I said to you, over the years you have come to this panel, I have seen you grow in kind of what I would call your command presence. You're saying the same person. You didn't, you know, give up your faith. You didn't change your ethnicity or anything. But I saw you grow to have much more presence in the class. These are skills. This is not about personality. This is not about background. And thank you for, for making that extraordinarily important point. So, Deb, I know uh, you mentioned uh, that you came back to Facebook after you had your third child. I know that you are married, you have three children, and that your family is very important to you. And I think one question that people often struggle with today is what they call work-life balance, or what my colleague Nuria Chinchia at ESA calls work-life conciliation. Can you talk? I mean, you obviously have had a demanding career at uh, PayPal, at Facebook, now a CEO of Ancestry.com. How do you make all of this work? Yeah, you know, I actually wrote a chapter about that in my book, chapter eight, which is creating balance at home. And that's one of the, the things that I think is really important. You know, I like to decriminalize having help, honestly. And I think that if you look at men who succeeded over the years, they've had incredible amounts of help. I remember joking with my husband in a particular difficult day. I said to him, I could really use a wife. And he goes, me too. And we started laughing because, you know, for if, if you look at very successful men who've reached the C-suite, they often have a ton of help. You know, they have a spouse that often is very supportive of them. You know, I think something like 70% of those who are, are senior executives who are men have a stay-at-home spouse. And for women who reach the same levels, it's less than 20%. It's just the reality. And so we don't ask men like, well, how do you balance everything? But we ask women. And the thing is, it was incredibly challenging early on, like being pregnant. I had really difficult pregnancies. My youngest um, had colic for a year. And I thought about dropping out. And I welcome this question because I feel like we it's verboten for people to talk about this. But I had so much help. And I wish that people would say, it's okay. But you know, you, you'd be surprised. I've shared like some of the help that I've had over the years. Like I, when the kids were small, I had a nanny. But the reason I had nannies was my daughter was very sick for a long time. And so, you know, she couldn't go to daycare. So I had, to, you know, we had nannies and it was incredible. And they were like second grandmothers to them. 
And I just realized that like, it's absolutely okay. But you know who else had a nanny? My husband. And no one ever gave him crap for that. And so I think one of the things that we need to do is say, you know what? It is okay to have help because our society makes it so it's difficult for women to succeed in the workplace without that support. And we should support each other instead of tearing each other down. And so this is why it's so important. You know, the other thing I say is I open the chapter with the quote from Sheryl Sandberg which is the most important career decision you make is who you marry. And that is absolutely true. My husband is an executive at a startup. He's spent many years in tech as well, and he's extremely successful, but he is also a full and complete partner to me. And I could not achieve what I have done without having him at my side. And we say that about each other's careers as well. And so, you know, our children are amazing, but, you know, they are also such an integral part of our lives and we want to be there for them. And so it's really about, I don't think spending time cleaning the toilets was a way to make motherhood better. And so for a long time, you know, I had people who helped clean the house and people might say that's privilege, but who else has had that privilege? Most senior leaders who've been men for all of these years. Yeah. Thank you for that. Amazing answer. Read Deb Liu's book, Take Back Your Power, which has a foreword by Sheryl Sandberg, which I think was actually inspired by her coming to my class and deciding that what I was teaching was might be a little too harsh for women or to give it her own perspective on it. And thank you so much for writing the book and for being part of the podcast and for being part of my class. And thank you. Thank you for being an inspiration. I actually would never have written this book had I not read your book and been part of your class for the last six or eight years now. And it's just incredible. Like my book is a compliment to your book, actually. It's a complimentary book to your book. And I, and I by the way, endorse Take Back Your Power because it is a fantastic book. So this has been the Pfeffer on Power podcast. I want to thank Deb Liu for being part of the podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I hope you will um, uh, found this interesting and useful as I did. I hope you will subscribe. If you want more information, go to jeffreypfeffer.com. That's jeffrey, P-F-E-F-F-E-R.com. Uh, read my book, Seven Rules of Power. Thank you very much. We'll see you on the next Pfeffer on Power podcast. Mm-hmm.